So tonight we're going to speak about covenant theology and kind of how we view Scripture. Uh, again, we look at, looked at systematic theology, the first five lessons that we had during these Vesper services. And uh, that kind of involves, you know, a theology of God, theology of sin, theology of man, theology of Christ, and that sort of thing kind of topically. Uh, but now we're kind of kind of look at our view of, 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 of the Bible. Uh, how does it all fit together? How does it all work together? And, uh, and we embrace a principle called covenant theology. Covenant theology has sometimes just been called reform theology because most Churches like ours, uh, and uh, both uh, Baptist and Presbyterian tend, and, and Dutch Reform and others uh, tend to view uh, Scripture in this way. Uh, and uh, and I will start off from the beginning. It's like so many other things. This is not the majority opinion of American evangelicalism. Right? You know, we're just sort of all, all in the minority. But my hope is that you will see the 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 reasonableness of connecting Genesis to Revelation one story one God one story one plan with multiple covenants all throughout and uh, so that's what we're going to be looking at today uh, apologies ahead of time some of these slides the transitions worked remarkably well on my computer uh, but they don't work so well up here did you Josiah smiling did you have an issue with that uh, but um but but they're not working as well here so the, the picture might come up first and then a few other things so apologize for that apologize for this too oh, do I need it yeah I need that yeah <laughs> By the way, many thanks to uh, our previous speakers. I, I'll be honest with you, Jack and I are a little intimidated. Those are such great presentations. And, uh, and then when you do something like this, you realize how much time goes into this. And those folks have full-time jobs, right? So uh, bless you for doing that. All right, so some of the references here, good old Douglas Kelly, professor at RTS, pastor in the Low Country, who uh, I've known for years. Um, I think he speaks 12 languages. He can preach in Gaelic. But if you, if you met him, you thought he would be a squash salesman at the farmer's market. I mean, he's just as country as you can be, but he's an absolute genius. Uh, Richard Pratt, Ligon Duncan, of course. Uh, you know Ligon Duncan is uh, the Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. The two big books, o, o. Palmer Robinson's book, uh, Christ of the Covenants, is sort of the classic here. Uh, and then uh, Michael Horton, who's... Uh, He's head of my favorite podcast, The White Horse Inn. He's a professor at uh, Westminster, California. Uh, he's one, written one. It's Frankly, it's a little bit easier to read, uh, Introducing Covenant Theology. So uh, if you have an interest to go deeper in this, and, and you, 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 this is just touching the surface. So you may want to go deeper. All right, so here's kind of our, our outline for the night. Uh, we're going to look at kind of covenant theology. Explain what is covenant theology? What's a covenant? We're going to start with that, right? Uh, the structures of the covenants. Then we see the covenants in Scripture. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the, the, the opposing view, you know, just because that's the more popular view out in American evangelicalism, dispensationalism. And then the importance, of course, of covenant theology as well. The idea of covenant, the, 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 the word covenant is beret in Hebrew, diathke uh, in Greek, and then testamentum uh, in Latin. What, where do you think we, what comes from that word? Yeah, Old and New Testament. So what you really are looking at is an old and a new covenant uh, when you're looking at your Bible, right? 
So definition here, uh, uh, Douglas Kelly says a covenant is in the whole, is the whole sovereign arrangement by which God saves us and relates to us. That's a simple definition, but it's really profound. It's the sovereign arrangement by which God saves us and relates to us. Oh, Palmer Robinson said a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Okay, so God is the one, we will, as we'll see, that originates the covenants. So let's break these, th- these thoughts down here. Covenant as a bond, it's a covenant at the most essential level is that which binds people together. You know, if you think about a covenant, what is a covenant? It's a contract, right? Uh, and uh, so, it, you know, we, we, we live in the day of contracts. We need contracts, but contracts have been around for thousands and thousands of years. Probably the most common thought in terms of covenant is marriage. Marriage is a covenant. You know, uh, I'm performing a wedding. Uh, Ryan and Emma uh, are getting married on Saturday. And I will start off, dearly beloved, we are gathered together in the sight of God and these witnesses. Isn't that interesting? I don't say these family members, these cousins from Nevada, <laughs> these witnesses, they, it's, a, it's a legal thing that's going on. There's a contract that's taking place there in the marriage ceremony. The term throughout scripture points to a bond relationship between God and man. Now that ought to blow your mind. Wow, God wants to have a relationship with man. I mean, you know, the older you get, the more you don't want to have a relationship with man, right? But here's God. Say, he's very old and he has a relationship with man. The result of a covenant is the establishment of a relationship where, where one is committed to another and it's established with oaths and bonds. Okay, you make promises, you make commitments. Again, this is an age that doesn't believe in a, making commitments, uh, but God, that is not a, a, a biblical principle. In biblical covenants, God is always the one who initiates relationship. Now, that goes back to so much of what we learned in the systematic theology, wasn't it? It was that God is the protagonist. God is the one who's reaching out. God is the one who's saving uh, and uh, not ourselves, uh, saving ourselves. Then we see this idea of a covenant of, as a bond in blood. A covenant is a bond in blood, uh, or bond is life or death. God never enters a casual relationship with man. He is very serious. And the blood involved with the setting of a covenant helps remind us of the seriousness of that. The implication of the bonds extends to life and death. Uh, the phrase to make a covenant, it literally means to cut a covenant. And I apologize, my Hebrew also didn't, didn't show up. Um, because Hebrews tells us, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And isn't it interesting, if you study uh, various cultures all around the world, sacrificing is a part of most religions. Whether it's animistic or Islamic or whatever, there's just we just know that my sin is costing something, and it's going to take some blood uh, to be able to try to try to open up the, the the gates of forgiveness here. Once a covenant relationship is entered into, the shedding of blood alone initiates the obligations of the covenant. And then as God, uh, covenant sovereignly administered, covenants between God and man are always unilateral, one-sided, no bartering or bargaining. So, you know, so, you know, uh, you know when, when God made his, uh, his covenant with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments, he said, can we take a couple out? You know, can we add a few? You know, it depends on whether you're a legalist or a libertine, you know. Now, there was none of that. You know, this is, thus saith the Lord. This is a non-negotiable, Right? And the covenants are administered by God on his conditions, on his conditions. All right. 
So I love this statement from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the basis of the Constitution here at our church and at other churches. The Westminster Divines met some 350 years ago to kind of codify the belief system in all the British churches. Um, it, uh, it worked well in Scotland uh, and uh, not so well in England. Uh, but uh, the, the, basically the West Confession of Faith chapter 7 says this, the distance between, let this sink in. The distance between God and the creature is so great that even though rational creatures are responsible to obey him as their creator, yet they could never experience any enjoyment of him as their blessing and reward except by way of some voluntary condescension on his part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. You know, so we think about the humiliation of Christ. We even used that verse this morning, uh, how, how God emptied himself by coming down the form of man. But God's been doing that kind of thing since creation, since Adam and Eve. He's been condescending to develop a relationship. I, 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 used, to, I used to do a lot of traveling uh, when I was a corporate recruiter many years ago, 30 years ago. And I would fly all the time. And, and I remember as the airplane's going up, and, you know, you, and any of y'all flown, you've seen this. You know, the, you, you got the, the runway, and then you got houses, and then you see cars going and everything. And then you get so high up, you, could, you can't even see the people. And I remember just marveling almost every time. At the best, he should treat us as pets. But he doesn't. He condescends to actually make a contract with us, to have a relationship with us, to treat us as children. O. Palmer Robinson in his book says this, that regarding the Emmanuel principle, Emmanuel of course means God is with us, one of the names of Jesus uh, given to Mary. The unity of theme is the heart of the covenant as it relates God to his people. A single phrase occurs as this summation of the covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. This phrase may be designated as the Emmanuel principle of covenant. The heart of the covenant is that God is with us. God is with us. Uh, that just overwhelms me sometimes. I will be your God and you will be my people. And you want to say, why? <laughs> why would you want that? Because God is love. God is love. The word covenant is found two, three hundred times in the Old Testament, uh, in New Old Testament, 33 times in the New Testament is referred to uh, more often than that. So these are the kind of categories of covenants. You have a unilateral covenant between uh, God and man or a bilateral covenant between man and man. You see that where uh, you make arrangements with various uh, other countries or tribes or whatever. Conditional, depending on something else that's being done or non-conditional, not dependent on something else being done. And then covenant renewal, the renewal of an old covenant established by God and not making of a new one. And if y'all recall, uh, it's our tradition on, on uh, the, the Sunday closest to New Year's uh, to, to read a covenant renewal. I actually taped mine in the back of my Bible. And, you know, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me to whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be emptied for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. May it be so. And may the covenant which I have made here on earth be confirmed in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to renew those things. That's basically, in a sense, the sinner's prayer. 
but it's also the saint's prayer. And we have to remember, we, we are God's and he is ours and, and he means everything to us. So it's sort of like one of the reasons for the Lord's Supper is to remind us of what Christ did for us because we just forget. We just forget. So sometimes, but it's a little scary saying that, isn't it, right? Do with me whatever you will, except for cause pain, financial hardship, <laughs> whatever. But listen, if God causes you pain, you want it. It's for a good reason. That's the first transition that didn't come over. Right, okay. Oh, that's because I'm turning it off. So the structure of the covenant, this is me before I shaved my beard. Uh, so you got Moses getting the law. So here, let's look at the structure of the covenants. Now, the interesting thing about the biblical covenants is archaeology uh, affirms the, 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 the covenants that we see in Scripture. It was actually a very common practice in the ancient Near East to have these sorts of covenants. And uh, this is sort of a comparison, and I won't go into it too long. But you basically, covenants in the ancient A&E means ancient Near East especially the Hittite empire, but mo almost all of those nations had covenants. If you think about, you basically had just lawlessness. It was pirates of the Caribbean in the desert, right? All the time, you know? So basically they said, if, if we're ever going to get anywhere, we got to start getting along with each other. So you would have these pacts, these covenants, these contracts where one tribe would get together another tribe, one city would support another city, one city would trade with another city, one nation would work out uh, uh, trade with another nation and peace treaties and things like that. Of course, we still do that today, right? NATO. There's been a lot of conversation about uh, Sweden and Finland coming into NATO, which is a big deal. That's a covenant, basically. So you had in the ancient, ancient Near East, you had this kind of idea of love, and you also see that in Israel, that, 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 that part of it is it's not just doing the list, is you are to love your sovereign, and your sovereign is to show love for you. There's a ritualistic, there's a ritual that goes along with these covenants. Uh, and what they would do, and you see this in, uh, in Genesis chapter 15 with the covenant to Abraham, you would cut the, you would cut an animal in two. You'd get a heifer, you'd get a sheep, or, or you maybe get some birds or whatever. You'd cut them in two. So, I mean... You ever cut an you ever cut an animal in two? Uh, I haven't either, but I would imagine. And there's entrails everywhere. There's blood everywhere. You know, but that's the point. And then what you were to do is you were to walk through the midst of those animals. You cut the covenant. And what you're saying is, if I break this covenant, I will be like that dead heifer with all of its entrails sitting out. Uh, so you have a ritual there. Uh, you have a, a, a maledictory statements. You know, if I do this, you know, remember uh, when the tribes came in to the uh, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebo and the one side said blessings and one side saying curse. Can you imagine that? Tens of thousands of people in this amphitheater. Uh, the blessings of keeping the covenant, the curses, the blessings, the curses. That's the same kind of thing. So you're talking about the blessings, the cursings uh, here. You see that also in the covenants of Israel. Uh, then you have a preamble, a prologue, stipulations and witnesses, right? You know, what is, what is one of the great preambles? Uh, we've actually already looked at it, but what are the great preambles of the, of, of the Ten Commandments? A covenant. I am the Lord, your God, who did what? Brought you out of the land of Israel. It's reminding the people of Israel, I'm that God who saved you from slavery. That's me. All right, so here's my preamble. This is who I am. Here's my prolet. What are my stipulations? You'll have no other gods before me. Get rid of the little statues of Ra. You know, I humiliated Ra. 
I humiliated the Nile gods. I humiliated the frog gods, the gnat gods, the, all the other gods, the sun god. Ra. And then you have witnesses uh, involved with that. This is where my transitions get to be uh, difficult. This is, of course, Howard Cox. Uh, here. You have different treaties here. So here's, here's the treaties. You'd have treaties, uh, a parity treaty among equals. You had Assyria, Egypt, Babylon with mutual obligations in their treaties. And then you have, but this is the big one for us, the, the uh, suzerain vassal treaties. Say Egypt, for instance, would have a treaty with the Canaanite cities. Now, Egypt is the superpower of the time. Egypt was a superpower. We think about Egypt now, we don't think that much about it, but it was the superpower for 4,000 years. I mean, they just had it going on, and everybody feared Egypt. Uh, and basically, the Canaanite cities knew that not only did, uh, did their protection come from Egypt, so they could also come in and just absolutely wipe them out, but they also got a lot of their food from Egypt. So you wanted to make these people happy. So you would have these various Canaanite cities make a, a covenant. Uh, they would be the vassal. The suzerain is Egypt, right? And you talk about their mutual obligations, the terms that are involved, and that sort of thing. Then you had sometimes parity covenants, for instance, between equals, Laban and Jacob. That was a parity covenant. But then you have these other covenants, Yahweh between Israel. Israel is the vassal. Okay? The church is a vassal to the Lord God. Yahweh dictates the terms. And there's mutual obligations. Yahweh and Israel are obligated to each other. Okay, so now that's another thing. Does God owe you anything? And yet he condescends to, to, to tell you he's going to do certain things. Kind of goes back to the, the principle of perseverance of the saints. You cannot lose your salvation. If God says you're saved, you're saved. You're saved. All right. Here's some of the nice. So you have a great empire. Then you have a vassal king or a nation. They, they, they show benevolence and then they are expecting loyalty and vice versa, patience and diplomacy. You get blessings. You do the right thing, you get blessings. You know, if you look at some of the great battles, uh, very often it was because Babylon was, was breaking uh, this treaty with Assyria. And you see this in, uh, in, when you study First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Um, the king of Israel got tired of paying all this tribute to Egypt, or then the Egypt would come and invade, uh, or Syria would come in and, and invade, uh, and also curses. So what happens if you don't obey? Okay. Now again, this is this is you. They have tablets from, for instance, the Hittite Empire that lay these things down, almost like it was scripture, the the, the same principles of scripture. So divine grace initiates and saturates the covenant dynamics, okay? So you got blessings and curses. God requires grateful, loyal love from his covenant people. God exercises great patience and repeatedly offers correction and forgiveness to his covenant people. Don't you see that in the Old Testament? I mean, think about the cycle of the judges. You know, you'd have, a, you'd have a, the prosperity, the people are worshiping God, but gee, imagine a nation that becomes extremely prosperous and then forgets God. It's a, that's a wonder, isn't it? Uh, so the nation forgets God. God sends in a, a, a foe, a tyrant, an evil nation to subdue them, rob them, take away people into captives and things. The people cry out in repentance and cry for deliverance. God raises up a judge. They started off pretty good. They ended up with Samson, kind of a macho womanizing jerk. And yet, talk about grace. Y'all know he's in heaven, by the way. 
He's in heaven. Uh, it, if you meet him, don't tell him I said he was a macho, womanizing jerk. But uh, so, yeah, so as you had this cycle of the judges, well, you see this, this idea that they, they would break the covenant. God would punish them. They'd come back. God would bless them with more prosperity. But then the next generations on would forget. They'd get just lazy. They'd forget Yahweh. Uh, they, they thought, well, you know, the Canaanites, you know, they worship Baal. He's the one that creates rain. So how do you create rain? Well, in a Canaanite culture, you create rain by having immoral uh, situations by laying with temple prostitutes to get Baal to get excited in order to bring rain on the earth. You know, so the Canaanite neighbor invites the Israelite neighbor over to church one day, and that's what the service is about. Well, that could be kind of attractive to a people who've already forgotten their covenant loyalties to God. So you just have these cycles over and over and over again. But God will richly reward faithfulness to covenant stipulations in nature and in war. God will judge flagrant rebellion against covenant situations. Here's the big covenants of Scripture. Now, having said that, um, there are really two overarching covenants. Well, some people say three overarching covenants. One was the covenant that... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have had with each other for all eternity. A mutual love and, and uh, kind of an economic Trinitarianism, various roles and that kind of thing. But for our purposes, there's really two major covenants. There's a covenant uh, of works that lasted for two chapters in the Bible. Okay? Don't eat of this tree and everything will be fine. <laughs> you know how many trees are on this planet? The one tree they weren't supposed to eat from, they ate from. Okay? And, uh, uh, and then God came in with the covenant of grace. Remember, he, he actually killed an animal and covered their loins with, the, in a sense, the blood of the animal. Even that, Genesis chapter 3, is foreshadowing the coming of the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. So these are our covenants. We'll go through each one of these briefly. Covenant with Adam in Genesis 1 through 3. Covenant with Noah, of course. We know with the ark, uh, Genesis 6 and 9. Covenant with Abraham, you see that first mentioned in Genesis 12, but uh, the more stipulations within the covenant of uh, 15 and 17. Covenant with Moses, or the Mosaic covenant, or, or, or the, uh, Israel in general at, the, at Sinai. Covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, and you see that uh, referred to in Psalm uh, uh, 83, where it's called a covenant. And then, of course, the wonderful new covenant. And we are under the new covenant as Christians. So let's look at these. Covenant with Adam and the works. The pre-fall here, the Lord God commanded the man saying, You shall uh, surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, The first covenant made of man was a covenant of works in which life was promised to Adam in, uh, and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. All right. Well, again, I don't know how long that lasted, but in the Bible, it only lasted two chapters. Uh, then after the fall, uh, Adam's disobedience to a covenant of, war, uh, covenant of works. So Adam was no longer able to have a relationship with God and was under his curse of death and eternal separation without a divine Remedy, there was no hope. So God gave a remedy in the covenant of redemption or the covenant of grace. You know, I mean, God, in the time of Noah, the world was so wicked that he wiped it all out except for eight people. How much easier would it have been done for him just to start all over when there were just two people? And yet, God in his grace extends his grace to, to uh, Adam and Eve. 
And even in the midst of this curse situation, we see in Genesis 3, the proton euangelion, the first evangelical, the first good news. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. He shall bruise you, your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So where do we see the good news here? Where do we see the good news here? That basically the rest of the history is, is the redemption playing out of these two seeds, these two types of people or, 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 or seeds that are fighting each other. So an enmity is hostility to a point of murder. All right? But a, you have a seed versus seed. Satan does not have offspring, right? Satan doesn't have children. So what's he talking about? What are Satan's seeds? Well... Nero, Pharaoh, Hitler, fill in the blank. Uh, I better be careful. I better stop naming names or I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> I know what Keith is thinking. But anyway, uh, so, so, uh, so these are spiritual seeds, right? So it's people who are opposed to the church, people who are battling good, people who are promoting immorality, whatever, however you want to put it, uh, false religions, this kind of thing. But then ultimately you see it's Jesus versus Satan. Jesus first. So even in Genesis chapter 3, Satan's going to wound Jesus. But Jesus is going to crush him. I love how Paul closes in Romans when he's talking to the Christians, Romans, the church in Rome. He says, soon you will crush Satan under your feet. So we, we win in the end. It, we just, we got a lot of Nero's and other people before we get to that, that point. So you see a fulfillment of the covenant grace. Yeah, there's a progressive development here. There is, a, uh, there is in the covenants a building or progression as the kingdom of God and the history of redemption unfolds. Old covenants do not disappear with the institution of new ones. And then there's an organically linked one. That doesn't mean there's no GMO in the covenant. That means it's living. There's, it's an active uh, covenant. To speak of an organic relationship is to suggest a living vital connection as over and against an isolator of compartmentalization, the covenants are not compartmentalized dealings with man, but an organically linked plan of redemption. And this is kind of the point of covenant theology. It's one story. We don't chop up the Bible in lots of little pieces, like as you'll see the dispensationalists uh, tend to do. If you go to the first three chapters of Genesis and the last three chapters of Revelation... The similarities are amazing. There's paradise. There's paradise, right? There's a marriage. There's a marriage. Uh, there's the tree of life. There's the tree of life. You know, there's all these things. It's one book. Those are bookends to the, to the rest of the story that is God comes through with covenants. Then we see the covenant with Noah, um, the, uh, which is a form of salvation. Jesus was a type of ark that saved us out of the, the wrath of God. The Noahic covenant was a one-sided promise on God's part with no conditions. The redemptive aspects of Noahic covenant involved believers in the line of fidelity to Noah and especially through the line of Shem. If you go through Genesis, it tracks the line. You know, Abel was the godly one. He gets killed. He's replaced by Shem. And you see this, this line. You actually see the seed of Satan in a sense with the line of Shem. And then the line of, uh, that goes up with Tubal-Cain and, 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 and folks like that. Um, and the covenant sign, of course, was the rainbow. With the rainbow. So every time you see a rainbow, we saw one. Just recently, every time you see a rainbow, you're, you're, it's, it's to remind us that God is not going to flood the earth again. He is going to burn it up, but he's not going to flood it. Uh, 
Did I skip one? Yeah, I skipped a pretty important one. Uh, we just sang about Abraham, about to leave him out of the story. Uh, so Abrahamic covenant, this one's absolutely essential because this is where God starts with a, with, with a program here. Uh, kind of the line of Noah, the Tower of Babel, the, the promise is sort of forgotten and God renews it with Abraham. Now Abraham, from all we can tell, at least his daddy was a moon worshiper. He's worshiping in Ur of the Chaldees. They're, you know, they would have these ziggurats and they would perform sometimes human sacrifices for the moon god and that, uh, that and whatever deities they had there. So God shows up and says, you're mine. I want you to leave this land and go to a land I'm going to show you. And Abraham follows him uh, in faith. So he establishes this covenant. He says in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to make this covenant with you and, and you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. And that's where you Gentiles come in later on, right? God's unconditional covenant with Abraham is at the heart of the covenant of grace. The covenant is not based upon the merits of a man, but the promise of God. I will make you an exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. He could have picked anyone, but he picked Abraham. Abraham was in the line of Shem, you know, but, but he, he, could have, he could have done it with anybody. He started his program with Abraham. And, of course, this is where Israel comes from. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's other name is Israel. So Israel, Abraham was Israel's great, great, great no, grandfather. Yeah. Uh, so this is when you think of Israel, you think of Abraham, Father Abraham. Genesis 15 contains God's self uh Oath, he, he walks between the cut animals. Now remember what we said, when you walk between those disemboweled cows, you're saying, Let, oh, that I would be disemboweled uh, if, uh, if I break this covenant. God, in this situation, is the one who walks through the animals. I don't think Abraham walks through it. God basically, he, 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 in a sense, brings curses on himself if he doesn't keep his covenant. Now why would he have to do that? Love, love involves both offspring of Abraham and the land sets up the nation of God. And the covenant sign later on is uh, Genesis 17 is circumcision. He wants all the males to be circumcised on the eighth day. And you see that that's not really a requirement for keeping the covenant so much as it is a sign of the covenant. Covenant with Moses gives the law to establish Israel as a nation and guide them in the purpose of Yahweh. He establishes a theocracy over Israel. So God is the king. It means authority and worship and legislation does not provide an alternate means of salvation. And this is, people get so confused about this. Uh, and uh, they think, well, you got to keep the law of Moses to be saved. Well, good luck with that one. <laughs> you know, uh, you're not going to keep it. Right. But that really got to be the point where uh, the Jews in Jesus time the, uh, uh, really basically taught that. But they knew they couldn't do it. So they made all these rules and regulations that they probably could keep. Or they figured out loopholes where they could kind of get out of having to keep them and that sort of thing. It's undergirded by grace of Yahweh already set forth in the previous requirements. It requires national obedience. And I think this is important to understand. That's a national covenant with the nation. And I think when we start looking at the law, the law of Moses, and it just seems overwhelming as an individual, uh, you, it, it, the principle there was as a nation, you need to keep doing these things and you will be prospered and I will bless you. If you break these things as a nation, which they did time and time again, you will receive curses. 
So I like what E.P. Sanders says, they got in by grace, but stayed in by obedience. That was part of that covenant. So there, there is, a, there is a, uh, a, a point here where, as opposed to some of these other covenants where God just says, I'm going to do this. There was obedience was required of them, which they were not able to do. The apostles recognized that. And that's, that kind of was the setup for the new covenant. Uh, one reason why they weren't able to do it is because they didn't have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit like, the, like, like we do as Christians. Then you see the covenant with David. It developed an empire and glory for God. Centralization of worship. David conquered Jerusalem. Um, introduction of the kingship of promise. Promise of a son to rule forever. And that's the key there. The major passage is 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89. Uh, and you think about how Christ fulfilled that. This is one of the most important passages in the whole uh, Old Testament. That they're gonna, he's going to have a line that never ends. Well, they all ended, right? And then they got taken off into Babylon. Well, they ended. Yeah, but they didn't. It was fulfilled with the eternal Son of God whose kingdom is, to, is we're part of today. So that's one reason why they kept, continued to call uh, Jesus Son of David, Son of David, Son of David, because he was a Son of David. He was related. You see, that's the reason why Matthew and Luke include the genealogy of Jesus, so that you know he is the fulfillment of this, of this promise. Oh, oh no. Yeah, just look at, look at that. That's good. Let's do that again. Uh, whoa. All right. <laughs> New toy. <laughs> All right. The new covenant. Ooh, we love the new covenant, right? Uh, the fulfillment of all the previous covenants. It fulfills all this. All the types and shadows in the previous covenants are embodied in Christ. This is the point of the book of Hebrews. You really need to study the book of, pre, of Hebrews because it talks about the, 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 the superiority of Christ over Moses, over Levi, over angels, the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. Those are all types and shadows. You know, we, we did, you didn't, if y'all came here this morning, if you're one of the four people that were at church this morning, because everybody else is at Kiowa, but I'm not bitter. Uh, we did not sacrifice a sheep up here. We didn't. I didn't come out with, uh, with incense and I didn't have the urn and the thumen and, uh, and, and try to predict the future or anything like that. But, but doesn't the scriptures uh, say that you're supposed to do that? Yes, it did. Then the new covenant came. And all of that sacrifice was to point to the once for all sacrifice. And Hebrews says, once for all sacrifice. It's done. It is finished. He never has to die again. He died once. He's risen now. So he's fulfilled all that thing. And people get so confused about those, those various law codes and why we don't still do that. The seven-day Adventists still are out there saying, you, you, you have to eat uh, um, kosher food. They, they adhere to the Levitical law codes. But that was all, uh, that was all uh, uh, overcome with the coming of the new covenant. The new covenant surpasses the old and its per perfect and final sacrifice and therefore gives final sign and seal of the Holy Spirit. It gives personal knowledge of God, whereas the other covenants would only give a taste. There is the sense of God, a terror of God and everything, but there's an intimacy that comes with the new covenant. Um, of course, you see the major passage, the manual principles fulfilled. The major passages, of course, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37. Listen to the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. That is so powerful. It's one reason why you can't quit Christianity. Because you'd be dishonest with yourself. Because you know, I know him. He lives in me. He's a real person. The Bible is true. I love him. And I'm just going to live the rest of my life for him. You, you, just, you, can't, you can't undo that because this new covenant uh, resides, uh, the power of that resides in, within us. So I would say if there was a covenant sign for the new covenant, it's probably the filling of the Holy Spirit, which you saw practically visibly on the day of Pentecost, right? Um, it's, of course, a lot less obvious these days. Sometimes it's not obvious at all. But uh, all right. Now let's talk about dispensationalism. This is sort of the, the, the opposing view this would be, this is the Left Behind series, Late Great Planet Earth, um, and uh, this is the kind of the popular view uh, of Scripture. And the big criticism that I have, and most people who embrace covenant theology have, is they separate uh, Israel from the church. And, 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 and even so far as early, and dispensation is, by the way, is the new kid on the block. It's only been around since like 1870, something like that. Uh, with a Schofield Study Bible, Ryrie Study Bible, Dallas Theological Seminary is a big dispensational seminary. Um, uh, but I just think they have a wrong view about things. They don't see a connection between Genesis and Revelation. They see a, a, a breaking up. And even early dispensationalists basically would even say the Old Testament is a Jewish book, the New Testament is a Christian book. They, they lose the continuity between the two. Whereas we would say that the, the, the Israel, basically Israel became the church. The church is born out of Israel. The, 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 the vine was grafted into the, to the olive plant, as Paul says. And this, this is, this is going to wow you here. Ta-da! I have no idea what that means. No, I'm kidding. It's a, it's a very busy chart, but it just kind of shows you there is this idea of kind of like we have covenants. But their view is that God, God starts a plan, man blows it, God comes up with a new plan, man blows it, God comes up with a new plan, man blows it, and keeps on going, keeps on going, keeps on going, okay? And then you have this age of the church, and then Christ is going to come rapture the church, and then he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth for the millennium. And they're going to rebuild the temple even including perhaps having sacrifices again, which never made any sense to me. This stuff never made sense to me, even though I believed it because I was told I was supposed to. But the big thing is the, is the, is the disconnection. They don't see the ch Israel as being the predecessor to the church. They just see various programs. And what, what bothers me about this is that basically man is the one that's kind of running the system. Because man keeps making mistakes, God has to come up with a new plan again, over and over and over again. They don't see this progression uh, that that we see in, in covenant theology. But I mean, for instance, if you just look at Gen if you just look at Galatians chapter uh, three. Now, if you go, if you look at Romans nine through eleven, Paul wrote Romans nine eleven so that you would know that 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 you as Christians are receiving the promise of Abraham that Israel has forsaken Christ. There are some that got saved that were Jews, uh, but, but the church is God's program now. So the, the church comes out of Israel. Now, if you keep reading in Romans 11, it appears that there's going to be some sort of revival for Jews at the end. 
Some people say, it's not, it doesn't matter. Israel might as well be Peru. I don't buy that. I I think God's still got a plan for Israel. Uh, But it's a little confusing now because Israel is not necessarily all Jews. It's a nation now, right? It's a, uh, but... But anyway, listen to, listen to these verses from Galatians chapter 3. Uh, picking up with verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now, to be a son of Abraham, that means an Israelite. So he could have said an Israelite. It's those of faith. Do you have faith? How do we, how do we become Christians? Faith, right? And as the, uh, the scriptures foreseen that God, uh, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. All right. Verse 14. Uh, he was crucified on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. All right. 29. If you belong to Christ, you're a Christian, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Why are they putting a wedge between Israel and the church? It's just dumbfounding to me. Uh, so, so this is, this is we, we, we tend to dismiss this, this view. Now, let me say this. This is not a point of fellowship, okay? Uh, I could be wrong <laughs> about all this, you know? We hold some of these things that are more mysterious. There's one passage that speaks about millennium, for instance. So, so we do not have an official view on the end times in our church. Uh, so that's not one of these requirements for, 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 uh, for membership or something like that. So we can have fellowship with a dispensationalist. It's a good thing because most of them are, right? Uh, and there are actually, it's beyond my understanding, but there are some reformed dispensationalists. John MacArthur is one of my heroes. He is a reformed dispensationalist. I can't figure it out. But it's interesting, you kind of wouldn't know until he starts telling you because he has a high view of the Old Testament and he speaks of the covenants and things like that. Uh, But again, Dallas Theological Seminary, which is a thoroughgoing evangelical seminary, they're our friends. In this area, we disagree with them. They're our friends. They're our brothers, our sisters. So I don't want to make this point to the point, I don't want to demonize dispensationalists because they're probably most of the Christians you know. They're just wrong. (laughs) Okay, so... uh, it's kind of like with creation, you know, uh, I'm a six day creationist. I just, just the, that's the easiest reading to me. That's the one that's simple. I think that's what a Hebrew shepherd 3000 years ago, if you read Genesis, that was what he would have been. Uh, but I recognize, uh, you know, there, there's people who are more godly than me that have a different view. So it's not a point of fellowship, I guess. So kind of the sum up some of the importance of covenant theology. It gives a coherent wholeness to scripture, Genesis to Revelation, one story. And it's sort of like the doctrines of grace we talked about earlier. Once you see it, especially that doctrine of election, once you see that, you can't unsee it. You see it in everything. And you see that with covenant theology as well. That This whole relational thing that God has had with his chosen people from the time of the garden onward uh, it's just in, it's just, it saturates uh, scripture. It avoids individualism and an emphasis on the sovereignty of God and the people of God, with an emphasis on the sovereignty of God and the people of God. A biblical view of covenant makes marriage more secure at a time of massive divorce. Covenant concepts are foundations to civil and religious liberties. I mean, the biblical principles of covenant, of one of the na- reasons why our nation has been so prosperous, 
It's a key to understanding God's immutability and a key to understanding uh, the sacraments. One other quick thought, too, is, you know, Paul goes in uh, in Romans and talks about uh, two covenants, one in Sinai, one in Jerusalem with two different women, one of Sarah, one of Hagar. And, and what he's talking about there is not another one of the covenants here. He's basically saying that the Jews during Jesus's time basically took over the covenant promises of God, took over the new covenant, and they put in this covenant of legalism where you had to keep all of these laws and you'd be saved. You'd have to be saved by, uh, by keeping the law and that kind of thing. Uh, so don't let that confuse you about that. Well, that's covenant theology. That's kind of our view of scripture. And uh, you'll hear us refer a good bit to the covenants and um, hope that you will explore that idea uh, somewhat more. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I do pray that you would bless us as we seek to understand the truths of Holy Scripture, God, and, and help us not to be intellectually lazy. Uh, let us be those people who, who, who desire knowledge, not to be puffed up with it, but just to love you all the more. How can we love a God we don't know? How can we know you when we don't study the Scriptures? So I pray that you would help us to put together these pieces, parts, and just have an overwhelming sense of love and loyalty to you. But also, Lord, help us to hold these views with humility. Uh, uh, we have a, a holy confidence that what we teach, what we believe here is correct based on scriptures, based on godly men who have gone before, who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith. But, but humility requires us to say we could be wrong. We could be wrong. Uh, so I pray, God, that you would just help us to, uh, with humility, uh, uh, hold on to these positions, but also with a holy zeal to tell others about how wonderful you are. In Christ's name, amen.